Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, we spoke last week about Donald Trump's first gag order uh, that came down in the civil case related to the Trump organization and other Trump business entities in New York. Now he's subject to a second significantly broader gag order from Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's presiding over the criminal case brought by Jack Smith in Washington, D.C., related to his efforts to steal the 2020 election. And so this was an interesting challenge for Judge Chutkin. The government had asked for this gag order weeks ago. The former president has been making all sorts of inflammatory statements about all kinds of people. They say that that's going to interfere with their efforts to conduct an an orderly and effective trial. And now Judge Chutkin held a hearing and she agreed to impose some significant restrictions on what Donald Trump is allowed to say publicly related to this case. She did. And uh, this was a long, very thorough hearing. Uh, She announced her ruling from the bench, which is different than what I would have predicted, that she do it in writing. And I believe, first of all, Josh, that she was probably influenced by Trump going all in the night before on Truth Social, uh, very much in the manner of someone who was daring her to gag him. So he posted a post that, uh, you know, called Jack Smith a leaking, crooked and deranged prosecutor, said that Chutkin should recuse herself based on the horrible things she said, said they're trying to silence him and take away his rights and called them both by inference political hacks and thugs who are destroying the country. So, I mean, if you want the judge to gag you, that's how you go about getting the judge to gag you. At the hearing, Chutkin was uh, fairly strict with both sides. She made it clear to Trump's lawyers she didn't want a lot of political arguments. She didn't want to hear a lot about the campaign and that Trump was ultimately a defendant, like any other defendant, subject to the same limits. She very much rejected Trump's lawyer's suggestion that this would go much easier if she would just postpone the trial until after the election. Uh, She laughed at that and said, no, it's going in March. Uh, This trial will not be based on the election schedule. Ultimately, after a lot of careful discussion about You know, what exactly is Trump saying uh, that she should gag? How would a gag order work? What would the terms be? How would that work? How would you police it? She wound up coming out and saying that what she was preventing was Trump attacking the special prosecutor and his staff and his office, the court's staff, although not the judge herself, and attacking witnesses in connection with their testimony. So a big part of this argument, Josh, was, well, you know, he's running for president. He's running against some people who will be witnesses. How does that work? He can't run for president. What what Shutkin said more or less is, you know, like with Mike Pence, for instance, you can attack him, but you can't attack him about what happened on January 6th or about the subject matter of his testimony. So if you want to say, you know, Mike Pence is a ridiculous figure who once thought that America is going to collapse because of the Disney movie Milan. That's fair game. But you can't say Mike Pence let us all down on January 6th and he should pay for it. Is this order constitutional? Well, that's an excellent question. And the law in the area is a little fuzzy. I think it is plausibly constitutional, but also plausibly not. I think it is the sort of thing that will and should be reviewed by a higher court. As we've talked about several times before, the law is not terribly clear on the extent of a trial judge's power to issue gag orders on participants. And uh, there's no Supreme Court case exactly on point. uh, And there are 
a lot of other court decisions kind of all over the map. The reasons for this is, as we've discussed before, probably are that very few defendants go out of their way to antagonize the judge, to attack the prosecutor, to do the sort of things that would generate this type of hearing. And even fewer do that crazy stuff and have the will and the money to appeal it and litigate the issue. So it happens a lot, but it doesn't get litigated a lot. This will get litigated because Trump's very motivated. Uh, he has the resources to have his attorneys appeal it vigorously. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, the sense of the law is that judges have some leeway if the party's statements um, interfere with the orderly administration of justice. Uh, but exactly how that's calculated and whether basically you have to meet the strict scrutiny standard showing it's a compelling interest and this is as narrowly tailored as it possibly can be, that's not 100% clear. But I will say that whenever judges' own power is at issue, and this is at the heart of judges' own power, their ability to control what's said about them and their staff and the proceeding in front of them, judges tend to read their power uh, generously. Uh, more so than they read the power of the other branches of government. So it would not surprise me if this goes the way the law has generally gone, which is a somewhat flexible ability of judges to issue gag orders when there's a plausible showing that uh, a party is making statements that might interfere with witnesses or interfere with a jury pool. It's worth noting that Judge Chutkin's uh, gag order, while it's significantly broader than the one that we saw recently in New York, it's narrower than what the government had asked for. The request from Jack Smith had been a gag order that applied to statements regarding the identity, testimony, or credibility of prospective witnesses, and also to statements about any party, witness, attorney, court personnel, or potential jurors that are disparaging and inflammatory or intimidating. Uh, and so a few of the places where Judge Chutkin's actual order doesn't apply that it would have if she had followed exactly what Jack Smith asked for was, one, it doesn't apply to her. She's court personnel, even though she's not court staff. Uh, it doesn't apply to all of the parties. This is something that we talked about previously. The United States is a party to this case, and there was some discussion in this hearing about broad criticisms that Donald Trump might levy against Joe Biden or against the Justice Department and that sort of thing in the election campaign. And this this order applies only to the to the prosecution team rather than to the to the United States or the United States government more broadly. Uh, so it doesn't uh, implicate as many topics that he might discuss on the campaign trail as you'd expect. The, the interesting thing about that, Josh, is it's, it's a little different than what she seemed to be saying during the hearing. So Trump's lawyers were saying this is fundamentally unfair. Our guy is running against Joe Biden, uh, but Joe Biden can attack him and he won't be able to attack Joe Biden. And the judge's response is, well, Joe Biden hasn't been indicted uh, for a variety of federal crimes. He's not on trial. And so he doesn't have things limiting him. But ultimately, she made a decision that leaves Trump free to attack Biden, to attack the Department of Justice and the administration of it in general, and to pursue his theory that he's being singled out for prosecution by the government, just not specific attacks against the special counsel uh, and his staff or against the court's staff. Well, but those and those positions are not inconsistent, I would note. She, she could believe that Donald Trump has no particular constitutional right to make certain campaign arguments uh, if they interfere with the administration of this trial. And she can also believe that it's not necessary to restrict those 
statements in order to promote uh, the administration of the trial. Right. And that could be her attempt to narrowly tailor, as she should under First Amendment analysis, the limits here. There were several references to the gag order in New York state court that arose when Trump attacked this law clerk of the judge there. And I continue to think that that decision by Trump, uh, whatever the political benefits were to him of that, was pretty disastrous in terms of this type of proceeding. Uh, it, it clearly had spillover effect in this case. Judges are very, very protective of their team, of their staff. And so I, I think that heavily influenced her feeling here that it was necessary to protect people and to, to create some sort of limit. Trump's attorney, John Loro, made clear in the hearing that they would appeal um, any sort of gag order that was imposed. And he also suggested that, that was going to interfere with the movement toward trial, that basically time that everyone should be spending preparing for trial would instead be spent litigating the gag order. And so what is that likely to look like if there's an appeal here? Is that going to interfere with the trial calendar? Will there, you know, will they stay any of these proceedings or will everyone be so busy with the practice around that that it's impractical to go to trial? Uh, on schedule in March of next year? I, I would say that seems, the answer seems to be pretty clearly no, based on Judge Chutkin's comments. Um, she's if, if they say we got to spend time on this First Amendment issue, uh, she seems to be saying, you do what you want, but we're going to trial in March, you know, whether or not you're prepared. The appeal of this, whether it's, and it depends on exactly how the order is done for various technical reasons, whether it's an appeal to the extent she makes it like a bond condition or whether right, we haven't there. There will be a written order, which we haven't gotten yet. Right. We've just gotten what she said in court was her ruling. So it might be a, a writ, which is sort of an extraordinary appeal, or it might be an actual appeal, depending on how it's framed. But that is not something that should have any impact on the trial date to the extent the Court of Appeal issues any sort of stay and that's possible, it may only be of this order itself, not of the trial in general. And things are going to go in parallel. They're going to be litigating this issue on appeal about the extent uh, and legality of this gag order. And meanwhile, they're going to be marching towards trial. And then there hasn't been any penalty yet. Uh, one thing that's not clear is what happens if Trump violates this order. So I guess the, would would they appeal now or would they wait until she imposes some sort of sanction on him for some statement that he makes in the future? I think that they will appeal now, or appeal or file a writ. And um, because, you know, he's being chilled now. The First Amendment mm -hmm. uh, gag orders and other First Amendment things are one of the areas where you're allowed to basically challenge it before you've been punished on the theory that it chills your speech. So they're on firm ground to take this up immediately. Judge Chutkin seemed to be very pointedly avoiding making pronouncements on what the penalty would be. You know, someone brought up basically, well, are you going to put him in jail? And she didn't address that. She said there would be sanctions, but she didn't make it clear what those sanctions would be. And I, I think she she probably hopes that she won't need to and that it will be moot. And, that, you know, why cross a bridge before you're presented with it? Okay, well, well, we'll watch that and we'll take a look at the written order once it's available and we may revisit that next week if there's interesting new stuff in the, in the written order or if there are appeals filed or writs. I now want to talk about Senator Bob Menendez. Ken, I'm really enjoying this new character on the show. He's rapidly making himself a really important part of this cast of characters. 
He really is. You know, these mid-series characters being added doesn't always work out. Sometimes you get your cousin Oliver, who's just a disaster. But, <laughs> but it seems like he's got real staying power. Robert Menendez, the senator from New Jersey, is now subject to a superseding indictment. Uh, so he's one of a few people who's gotten a superseding indictment. Donald Trump, of course, uh, got indicted twice in the Florida documents case. George Santos, who we'll talk about in a little bit, also has a new superseding indictment. And so this superseding indictment for uh, Senator Menendez adds a charge related to the Foreign Agents Registration Act that alleges that he was an agent of the government of Egypt as a sitting senator and failed to declare himself as one. Also, it's, you know, it's not good to be an agent of, the, of a foreign government when you're a sitting elected official, regardless of who you've told about that. But uh, it's a no-no to act on behalf of a foreign entity in pursuit of dealings with the United States government without registering. And they say that he did that. And so I guess the, the first question I have is, why wasn't this charged in the original indictment? What have we learned that's new, that the government would know that's new, that's, that they can charge this now, that they couldn't charge it a few weeks ago? It's not clear. Uh, this is like the least surprising superseding indictment ever. Uh, we more or less called this when we were talking about it, how there was this big other shoe out there to drop that the indictment talked about him you know, leaking stuff to Egyptian uh, interests and things like that. It seemed pretty clear they were going to come after him for something and they were still looking around for what. Maybe it was some level of internal authority to do a Foreign Agent Registration Act charge. Maybe it was some other witness they were trying to nail down and they just, you know, they were so eager to move forward with their super cool gold bar case that uh, they couldn't resist. Uh, but this was a pretty obvious, pretty straightforward addition. Like you said, um, it turns out that it's illegal to be an agent of a foreign government when you're a federal official. Uh, who, who knew? Uh, that's 18 U.S.C. 219. Uh, it's only a two-year penalty, so it's not terrible. But uh, the new charge is that he engaged in a uh, conspiracy to violate the statute, to act as a foreign agent while uh, a senator. And this just really goes to the same things that were already in the indictment, factually, the, the same chain of events that in exchange for gold bars and, you know, Mercedes and stuff like that. Uh, and as I suspect, his defense will be largely at the instigation of his younger wife uh, that he engaged in this scheme to do things for Egyptian interests. That's interesting that you say the, the defense will be at the instigation of his younger wife. Is that a viable defense to basically say, my wife talked me into this wicked woman? Like so not I'm a, I'm being a little facetious because it's not really a, a defense that she talked you into it. However, uh, it is a defense that I didn't know that she was making these explicit demands for bribes or these explicit promises. And like the, the stuff that crossed the line was done by her is the type of defense I could see uh, someone like Bob Menendez trying. Uh, really just trying to, you know, find that holdout juror uh, like helped him in his last trial. Well, so there's a couple of potential problems with that, though, right? Like one is who knows what communications between the senator and his wife will be will be found in the discovery process that could undermine that claim. And the other is, I mean, you, you could imagine a situation where she pleads out and testifies against him. She has a spousal privilege, which allows her not to testify, but she still can if she wishes to. Right. That's true. So remember, there are two types of spousal privilege. One is the privilege to refuse to testify against your current spouse. Uh, and the other is the marital communications privilege, where 
either party to a confidential marital communication can object to it being introduced into evidence. So, yeah, but she can totally flip on him if she wants to, and that's the course I would expect. Josh, I think you're right that any defense he has is going to be undermined by his total lack of discipline uh, of being the sort of thing <laughs> who, you know, Googles how much are gold bars worth. And, uh, and, a, and a delightful part of the superseding indictment that you pointed out, um, who basically sends a letter spelling out what the Foreign Agent Registrations Act requires and asking someone <laughs> else to be investigated for it at the same time that he's violating it. Again, yeah, this is a former congressman, David Rivera from Florida, who is uh, who Menendez alleges to be acting as a as an agent of the Venezuelan government. And it was basically a letter under Bob Menendez's name spelling out the elements of what it is to violate the Foreign Agents Registration Act and saying, you really ought to look into this guy who's breaking this law, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Yeah. You see, again, th that's just courtesy. Uh, that, that's just being nice to federal <laughs> prosecutors. You got to admire that. And so, I mean, one thing we talked about offline is that he might say, well, my staff wrote that letter. I don't know anything about this. I'm basically a big dum-dum. But that, again, you know, the, that will depend on the facts of the situation, that there might be email traffic or text messages making clear what the senator did in fact know about that in the process that it was being done. Plus, you could have people who worked in his office testify about how that letter came to be. Absolutely. And I, I'm he does not appear to be someone who has a whole lot of focus on operational security uh, in doing these types of things. So I, I suspect there will be more. To ask a bigger psychological question, th this is someone who already came under federal indictment for uh, allegedly receiving bribes in exchange for official acts. And he was tried and there was a hung jury and they did not retry him. And so, I, you know, on the one hand, it's like he beat the rap and maybe that makes him arrogant. But on the other hand, you would think that 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 episode, which was quite damaging to his political career and I'm sure was very expensive to go through that legal defense, you would think it would make you more careful about your actions in the future. I mean, is this a typical behavioral pattern that you see with defendants where they do not learn a lesson from a close call? Josh, when you say you would think the you in that is clearly not lawyers, uh, because <laughs> lawyers do not think that. Lawyers do not expect clients to learn lessons or or to really have a strong uh, grasp of cause and effect. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this happens all the time. People, you know, they reload, they redo the same schemes a little differently. Uh, they think, uh, oh, sure, I got caught once, but that's never going to happen again. Uh, they say, I'm not going to do the specific one thing I did wrong last time while doing every other possible wrong thing. So, no, it's not even a little surprising. I also this is this is a little thing in the superseding indictment, but we've talked a lot about overt acts in the context of the Georgia state prosecution, the RICO prosecution. And there's been a lot of controversy about, you know, well, these overt acts, these things aren't crimes. And, you know, you're indicting them for making political statements or for having meetings or that sort of thing. And so I thought it was interesting looking at the addition here when they added the count about foreign agents, uh, a conspiracy for a public official to act as a foreign agent. And they say the overt acts that the senator committed in furtherance of this conspiracy are that he went to dinner twice, that on June 30, 2018, he had dinner with Nadine. Uh, and while Hana, this uh, Egyptian businessman who had certain Egyptian interests and certain personal interests that he wanted the senator to help him with. And then they had dinner again in 2019 with an uh, Egyptian government official. And so I think that's that's interesting because obviously alleging that you had dinner with someone is not an allegation in itself of a crime, but it's an allegation of an overt act in furtherance of a crime. And then higher up in the indictment, they have some narrative 
about exactly what these dinners did that furthered the crime of the effort to act as an agent of Egypt. Right. And, you know, the, the prosecutors aren't limited to the overt acts spelled out in the indictment uh, at trial. And as you say, overt acts can be nearly anything as long as it's some sort of plausible affirmative action in pursuit of the goal of the conspiracy. Uh, it doesn't have to be a crime. It, it's, it's only intended to carve out uh, those few situations where it's just a few people you know, drunk, talking big about what they'd like to do, and then no one ever mentions it again, then you don't have a, a conspiracy. You only have a conspiracy if someone starts following up on this agreement. Speaking of superseding indictments, let's talk about George Santos, Congressman George Santos, who has been indicted again, and his campaign treasurer, Nancy Marks, has pleaded guilty to some charges related to his campaign. And the, the new allegations are basically both that they charged people's credit cards without authorization. Um, you know, if, the, if you gave a little bit of money to the George Santos campaign, you might find out that, in fact, you gave a lot of money to the George Santos campaign without realizing it. Um, but then the other thing is that they made false claims about money that the campaign had received. They said that the campaign received a $500,000 loan from George Santos personally. He did not make that loan. He didn't have the money available to make that loan. This is a guy who had been previously working in a Dish Network call center. This is not someone with hundreds of thousands of dollars lying around. And then they also falsely claimed that they received donations from certain donors who had never given money to the campaign. And the question is, why would you do that? Why would you say you had received money that you didn't? And what the allegation is, is that they did this in order to falsely present to certain people, including Republican campaign committees, that the campaign was doing well financially and taking in lots of money. And that got other people to give the campaign money. And it also got certain Republican party entities to provide meaningful support to the campaign to help George Santos win his election. So it's basically that they were defrauding people by making these false claims about having received money that they hadn't received. And so it's false statements to the FEC. Um, and it's also uh, basically uh, it's, uh, wire fraud and then, the, and then also identity theft. So uh, more trouble here for George Santos. Yeah. And, you know, uh, again, this might be the second least surprising superseding indictment uh, <laughs> that we've seen. It was pretty clear when uh, Nancy Marks noisily pled guilty uh, that more things might be coming down the pike. She didn't plead under an explicit cooperation agreement, but her lawyer has indicated that she's willing to testify, willing to cooperate. She's probably going to be looking for credit for that. So yeah, this this new superseding adds in identity theft, wire fraud, money laundering, lying to the FCC, conspiracy to fraud. FEC, excuse I'm me. I'm sure he'll lie to the FCC at some point also, but not yet. Exactly. Uh, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and access device fraud, which is what they call credit card fraud. So this is a very George Santos-ish mix of really, really dumb things and nominally sophisticated things. So you've got this, this scheme showing some political sophistication of, you know, we're going to lie about how much money we get so we get more money from other people combined with what if we ran the credit card twice? Uh, a whole bunch of things. None of them have a plausible long-term goal. Like th there is no plan here about how this is going to play out in the long run where it's going to work. Well, I don't know about that because this 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 idea that the loan was fake, this has been a popular theory in my household for some months. So I'm glad to see that this is getting borne out because some months ago, the question people were asking themselves is where the hell did George Santos get five hundred thousand dollars? 
what corrupt thing did he do to get his hands on this money that he then loaned to his campaign? And, you know, here, here, as I said, in my apartment, the, the theory we'd been batting around was, in fact, that there, there was no loan. Um, but the theory we'd been batting around about why you would have a fake loan to your campaign is not quite the same as the one that prosecutors are alleging. Um, I, the thought was basically, well, you could claim that you loaned your campaign hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then hopefully the campaign gets some momentum and you raise other money. And then the election happens and you lose and you have money left over in the campaign account and then you refund the money to yourself, quote unquote, paying back the loan that you never made. Basically, it's a way to steal money from your campaign contributors. And so basically, the, the, my theory had been that this was a producer's situation, that that might have worked if George Santos had lost because nobody really pays that much attention to a losing campaign. They're not expecting to get their money back. And, you know, the payment out to him, well, it's just a reimbursement of a loan that a, that a candidate made to his campaign, which is a thing that you can do. Um, the problem is if you win the election, then you draw a lot of attention to yourself. And in addition to ending up indicted, you can't draw that money out and pay it back to yourself because people will notice. Um, so, so, so it's kind of like mean, the producers only. Right. Uh, <laughs> but and as in the producers, they, they you know, they would have gotten away with it if springtime for Hitler had bombed. Right. Well, I, I like that theory. It's colorful. But isn't it a little smart for George Santos? I mean, this is a guy <laughs> this is a guy whose lies are more along the line of I was an astronaut. Um, so, uh, I, I, and again, we have to come back to this credit card thing. How do you think that's going to work? I'm just going to charge these people multiple times. They're not going to notice. They're not going to see this extra $5,800 on their charge card. Well, uh, some, some people are very careless about their credit cards. I guess that's true. And, and maybe they're supporting a lot of politicians. Anyway, <laughs> uh, things continue to get worse for George Santos. He continues to get more uh, belligerent about it. Uh, and uh, things are not looking good for him. I don't know. He's he, he's still funny. Like during the, the chaos about uh, not having a speaker in the House of Representatives, he walked out of Representative Tim Burchett's office holding a baby and some reporter asked him is that your baby and he said not yet yeah i mean that's I, very funny i think it, it takes a, a certain type of decision making power to hand george santos your baby uh, I, i'm just saying i don't like to judge other parents but I, i'm really not sure what that person was thinking so george santos is due in court on october 27th in uh, in east islip new york the courthouse i can see from my window by the way um, I look across the Great South Bay from Fire Island and I can literally see the courthouse where George Santos's fate will be sealed. It's like the only tall building on that part of Long Island. Um, what's going to happen when he goes back to court? Uh, he'll get arraigned on the uh, superseding indictment. Um, it's possible that based on the new charges, uh, bail will be revisited, but I think probably not likely if he's been obeying bail conditions to date. Uh, there are indications and reports that he's been negotiating with the government for a possible resolution, which uh, you know we've talked about before, how politicians tend to hold off on resigning because that's a bargaining chip in that uh, negotiation process. And I mean, maybe he is... Uh, going to take it to trial. Um, that would certainly be very entertaining. I don't think it's probably the best course for him to minimize damage. So we'll have to see. And then another topic that I was discussing with another friend of mine over the last few days was the outlook for George Santos post-prison. Once he's out, he's going to be one of America's great reality show contestants. Like, you can imagine him on Big Brother scheming 
and winning or probably losing, but you know, he'll he'll be entertaining either way. Is he going to be able to do that anytime soon? Do you have a sense of what kind of time we're talking about in a possible plea deal here? Well, it, exactly because he's got such an interesting array of different it's really a Whitman sampler of federal crime, you know, he's got all this different <laughs> stuff. Uh I, I, it's a little hard to calculate, but I think it's definitely years and uh, probably not over 10, but uh, probably more than a couple. Huh. OK, well, so I guess we're going to have to wait a little while for that. I hope Big Brother's still on. Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, speaking of more than 10 years, Sam Bankman-Fried is on trial right now. How would you say his trial is going? Well, for the government, it seems to be going pretty well. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, not so much. Uh, the government is doing what they do in cases with multiple cooperators. They're using them to corroborate each other. Uh, they're using other pieces of evidence to corroborate what the cooperators say. So they had uh, Caroline Ellison, uh, SBF's former polycool co-tenant, uh, basically just talking about the entire history of how he was running these companies and using FTX as the piggy bank for Alameda. And that, you know that's the core of it, that he was taking uh, investor money and using it to speculate through Alameda. She laid him out uh, pretty brutally. She seemed to hold up very well to cross-examination, and the government was able to put in a surreptitiously recorded meeting that she was running before the whole thing fell apart, where she was describing what was happening consistent with what her testimony is now. So that's very valuable because it shows she's not recently inventing it. The other witnesses are laying him out. The defense doesn't seem to be getting much uh, of a grip on tearing anyone down, and the judge is getting quite impatient with them in a way that sort of alarms some of the onlookers. So it seems to be going very badly for him. There was also this request from his attorneys basically saying they're not giving him enough Adderall and they need to give him extended release Adderall before he gets to the court because it's interfering with his ability to participate in his own defense. First of all, is that just is that just an effort to create an issue for appeal where they're basically going to say that SPF did, didn't have a fair trial because he was too distracted because they denied him his medication? It's not a very good appellate issue. And I, I guess it could be a, an attempt at that. You you don't look to the Bureau of Prisons for Adderall, okay? Uh, you, you don't look to federal authorities for any good health care of any sort, let alone sophisticated health care, when you're in custody. Uh, and so it, it's kind of a, a long shot uh, to even get any, let alone to say that being deprived of it. Um, is uh, is something that you can appeal. Um, I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried, you can imagine him on any number of substances to maintain what passes for normality for him. And I would say in his defense, he probably is not on more Adderall than your average child of two Stanford professors. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't think this one's going anywhere. So if it's not for an appellate issue, is it just basically that he's probably been complaining about this a lot to his lawyers and to, to shut him up, they had to ask? the judge to intervene with the Bureau of Prisons? 
Yeah, uh, that may be it. He may be saying that he's having trouble focusing and uh, trial days are long. You do get a little loggy in the afternoons, you know, so you can't completely blame him, even if he's looking at spending the rest of his life in prison. Um, but uh, yeah, it pr- maybe it's it's sincere. Maybe he thinks he needs it. Maybe his lawyers are just trying to do it without any, you know, malevolent uh, intentions. Is there any inquiry at some point into whether he has a true medical need for Adderall or for the quantity of Adderall he's asking for? Because, I mean, the one of the things that we've been reading in the news in the lead up to this case was about the widespread use of stimulants in the FTX offices and certain allegations that people there were abusing them or using them really for non-medical purposes, but in order to be able to pull all-nighters and that sort of thing. They actually had an in-house psychiatrist. Uh, which is weird in its own right. And then it's also weird that that in-house psychiatrist would talk to a whole bunch to The New York Times about the psychiatry of the FTX office. And that shrink denied that there was widespread misuse of stimulants there, although I don't know that Dr. Feelgood is necessarily the right person to ask about that. He also denied, by the way, that it was a fuckfest. He uh, said that if anything, the, the employees of FTX were undersexed. Uh, so sorry for making you all think about Caroline Ellison and Sam Beckman fried having sex again. Um, but I'm, <sighs> if you're, if you're asking for this, I mean, at some point is somebody doing an inquiry to figure out, does he really have a clinical need for this? Or is he just someone who like likes to be hopped up on Adderall? Oh, absolutely. So particularly with anything that's susceptible to being abused, the Bureau of Prisons or, or the marshals or whoever's custody you're in, uh, their medical staff, to use the term generously, will uh, kind of second guess your own doctors. And it's very common to be very difficult to get the medication that you're normally on, even for stuff that is not susceptible to abuse, let alone the stuff that that can't be abused. And, you know, drug abuse in, in custody is a huge problem. And so that's one reason that they're careful about it. But also uh, just the health care for people in custody tends to be absolutely terrible. Let's talk about Francesca Gino, that uh, suspended professor at Harvard Business School who is suing Harvard, also suing three other professors at other institutions who accused her of research dishonesty, essentially of faking data in order to produce studies that that had interesting findings about like, you know, if you make people sign their expense form at the top instead of the bottom, they are more honest in reporting what their expenses were, that kind of thing. These one weird trick findings that were very trendy in psychology for a while. And now we're finding out that a lot of this research was of poor quality, including these allegations against Professor Gino that she was literally just making stuff up. Uh, So Harvard suspended her from her position without pay for two years. They're initiating a process that could lead to her tenure being revoked, which is something that essentially never happens. Um, And they also wrote to various journals seeking the retraction of the papers at issue. And she sued. She has a, a variety of causes of action, some of which have to do with breach of contract, gender discrimination, but then she also has defamation claims, both against Harvard and against these other professors, saying that they they falsely accused her of faking this data. Uh, We talked about this a couple of months ago at this point. The episode was called Penal Colada. I'm uh, particularly proud of that title. It's because the the blog where the uh, accusations first surfaced publicly is a blog called Data Colada. Um, But so we're, we're revisiting this today because Harvard has filed their response and Harvard has a number of arguments about why they did not defame Professor Gino, some of which have to do with, you know, things we said were true, but others have to do with the question of were these even factual claims that could be defamatory in the first place? 
Yeah, and I'm glad to revisit this case, Josh, among other reasons that uh, discussing it before seemed to be the happiest you've ever been on this show that I can recall, <laughs> uh, the most enjoyment you've ever gotten out of it. So uh, Harvard filed, not surprisingly, a very strong motion to dismiss on the contractual related terms, basically saying, if you look at the plain language of the contract, they haven't violated it. They're going through the procedure they're allowed to go through. They have not yet revoked her tenure. They've, they've gone, they're going through the proper procedure. The defamation part is the interesting part. And it's actually remarkably brief, uh, remarkably short uh, in this motion. And they say basically the things they said were either simply true statements of fact or clear statements about their conclusions. So that when they say that she had been uh, put on administrative leave, that was simply true. It's an inarguable fact that they put her on administrative leave. And maybe you can sue them for doing it, but you can't sue them for factually correctly saying it. Uh, they also say that um, when they're doing things like retraction notices to journals, that those either have simply factual statements or statements that are clearly their conclusions, their opinions based on disclosed facts and that they're simply saying, you know, we're tracking this because this is what we've concluded. And that shows just not, you know, an absolute statement of fact that this was falsified, but that our conclusion is we're, you know, we can't rely on it anymore. They also make the argument, and, and this is something you pointed out a while ago, that that her sort of bragging about how famous she was was going to kind of lead into her being treated as a public figure. They say she is a public figure and therefore she has to show that Harvard acted with actual malice. Uh, right. She describes herself as world-renowned in her own complaint, which then Harvard points to and says she's world-renowned, therefore she's a public figure. Right. Uh, and that's an own goal by her. But uh, so uh, Harvard says you haven't plausibly alleged that we acted with malice. Now, remember, in federal practice, you've got to not only allege conclusions like you acted with actual malice, you've got to plausibly allege facts that support that conclusion. So there's this weird area of motions to dismiss in federal court where, yes, you take the complaint as true, but only if it alleges facts and not just conclusions. So what they're saying here is you haven't alleged anything that plausibly shows that we knew that anything we said was false, uh, or that we recklessly disregarded evidence that it was false. Uh, so it, it's a pretty strong motion, and it goes to the heart of what's going on here. So is this plausibly going to get at least the defamation components of Professor Gino's lawsuit thrown out before we get to a fact-finding stage? Because when, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, one thing we talked about was the likelihood that, you know, un unless this settled, you were likely to have to end up in a situation where there was going to be some fact-finding, that you would have to look into whether the statements were true or false in order to figure out whether Professor Gino had been defamed. Is this, is this a way for Harvard to say you don't even have to reach that stage? It is. And um, I, I think there is a strong chance that they will win on at least some of this and at least reduce the number of issues going on in the case. Uh, but, you know, I'll wait till I see her opposition to make pronouncements about that. And we still haven't seen the motion to dismiss uh, by Data Colada, by the, the, the researchers there, and to see what they're going to say. Their, their case is much more focused on defamation uh, because they didn't have a direct relationship with her. And it's probably somewhat more complex. So that's something we should watch for. 
I was interested to see some amount of arguing over the facts in in this motion, because one of the theories that Professor Gino has put forward as a possible reason that she did not commit research dishonesty is that maybe some person she worked with maliciously uh, altered the data without her knowledge um, in order to make it look like she had committed research dishonesty. And one thing Harvard says here is, you know, she floats this theory and she cites all these documents, but she doesn't actually attach all the documents that she's citing, including the final report that was produced for Harvard that led to their conclusion that she had engaged in research dishonesty. Right. Um, and they, they have this footnote where they, they say basically, you know, she had this theory that someone, you know, that, uh, someone maliciously gained access to and tampered with her data on various password protected devices. The committee found this theory highly implausible. And then the footnote says, the committee noted that for malicious actors to achieve such a result, they would have needed, among other things, access to plaintiff's Qualtrics accounts, her computer's hard drive, her second factor in order to log into two-factor authentication protected systems, access to her research assistant's personal computer, the ability to find multiple versions of data sets scattered across locations with idiosyncratic file names, the expertise to make changes to eliminate significant defects in data while leaving it otherwise intact, uh, and the ability to time that manipulation correctly so they wouldn't get caught. And so basically, they're, they're saying that that's, that as they attribute to their committee that looked into the allegations, they say that's highly implausible that basically someone else couldn't have done this, that if this data ma- manipulation happened, it had to be Professor Gino who did it. So that's um, that's getting into the, to the factual claims, basically saying she wasn't defamed because she did, or at least it's, you know, completely reasonable to conclude that she is the person who faked the data. Uh, I assume that's like a preview of an argument that would be made at a later stage. Right. Normally, you can't bring in additional facts at the motion to dismiss stage. You've got to stick with what's in the complaint. There are a few exceptions. So for instance, uh, if Professor Gino talks about that report in her complaint, but doesn't attach it, then generally speaking, you can attach it and say this thing that she's incorporated by reference says X, Y, Z. I I think that argument is more for flavor and color. uh, And I think it also supports the argument that they haven't plausibly alleged that they acted with actual malice, but that the judge isn't going to resolve, can't resolve any factual disputes at this stage, only whether it's adequately pled. I've been thinking a little bit about Professor Gino's litigation strategy here. And, you know, obviously, you know, one possibility is if, you know, if she, in fact, did not commit research dishonesty, then it would make sense to file this lawsuit to clear her name and get damages, et cetera, et cetera. But even if she did, she, like a lot of business school professors, she has the, a lucrative business consulting to businesses. Right. Um, and one thing we've seen in the press coverage is there's a lot of people who are loyal to her. Who have been basically saying, well, I, I don't believe that she could possibly have done this because I know her and I, you know, that Larry Lessig, for example, quoted in the um, in, in the New Yorker, I believe, or maybe it was the New York Times saying that, you know, she she can't have done this because he knows her to the extent that she muddies the water, even if this lawsuit eventually ends up getting dismissed. Maybe it's something that allows her to walk out of here and say, I didn't do this. I was railroaded. And some people will not be motivated to look too closely at the question. But if, you know, if she just walked away without suing, it would have been harder for her to make that claim. So that could be a reason to bring this lawsuit, even if you're not expecting to get a meaningful settlement, let alone damages. Absolutely. Uh, If she can walk away having pushed the plausible narrative that she's uh, a victim of the, you know, sexist uh, 
education bureaucracy and entrenched sexism at Harvard and that she didn't do anything wrong and she was prejudged, then she still has her opportunities and she still has her supporters and she'll be able to do something. And so, again, it's, it's very much a disaster mitigation type situation. And so, you know, you do what you can. Let's talk about Donald Trump. I want to talk about Fonnie Willis and the Georgia case related to the efforts to steal the election, um, where you're, you're going to have uh, what, what Ken is referring to as the cheese and crackers case. You have two of the defendants of the 19 originally charged in this case insisted on their right under Georgia law to a speedy trial. So Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesebro are going to, to trial together uh, imminently in a few weeks. Yeah, uh, end, of, uh, end of this month. Yeah. Um, if, yeah, even less than a few weeks. Uh, so th they're going to trial. And so they're talking about what witnesses are going to testify at the trial. And apparently the district attorney wants to call Alex Jones to testify. Yeah. Uh, what on earth? Right. Uh, would not be my choice. Uh, so I guess the theory is, is that Powell and, and maybe Chesborough talked to various figures in the political arena uh, during this conspiracy, and the government wants to be able to call them. So, and Alex Jones is one of the people. Uh, Ron McDaniel, the the chair of the uh, Republican National Committee, and uh, even Lynn Wood. So, uh, this would be a great idea if you were doing some sort of. Um, kind of farcical Circus of the Stars type TV show that was supposed to be a dumpster fire. I'm not sure, though, that it's a good idea if you're actually trying to have a trial that you want people to take seriously. Uh, Alex Jones, I, I'm not sure what he could testify to that would make calling him a net positive. Uh, he's, he's a horrific witness, as we saw in his defamation cases. He's extremely unlikable. Uh, he's incendiary. He's unpredictable. He's likely to do crazy things if he's called. He's uh, not trustworthy. Well, to say the least. I probably would have put that at the top of the list. <laughs> well, I, I mean, to say the least. Uh, but who is really? Uh, so his lawyer has said that he'll take the fifth if he is called, uh, which would probably be a smart thing to do and would probably wind up being better for the government because I can't imagine him not just sort of blowing up the whole trial if he testifies about anything. So uh, unless the government's strategy is somehow we're going to associate these defendants with with hated, crazy people, uh, then I'm not sure what their strategy would be calling Alex Jones or Lynn Wood. Then what what is what is Fonnie Willis up to? I mean, it's, it seems like, among other things, unnecessarily complicating her case. that's already very complicated. Uh, as you note, it's unlikely to further her objectives. What's the point? Well, critics of Fonnie Willis uh, say that she's in this for the spectacle and the attention. And this is a piece of evidence that could be taken uh, as evidence of that proposition. Uh, because, I mean, calling Linwood, calling Alex Jones, even saying you're going to do so uh, generates spectacle and attention and, and, uh, and media coverage. And so maybe that's part of it. Uh, but maybe she's doing it to uh, psych out the defendants uh, to say, you know, it's kind of like – I'm such a crazy prosecutor. I'm going to call Alex Jones. This is what your trial is going to be like. I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's I don't think any I don't think any competent prosecutor would seriously want to call Alex Jones unless there was literally no other option to possibly convict the defendant. Yeah. Uh, Alex Jones. I don't uh, I don't think you generally want him 
on the stand in your case. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for speaking with me. As always, we're going to leave that here this week. And uh, I encourage listeners, if you have reactions, questions, comments, please go to SeriousTrouble.show. Uh, go post in the comments section there. We very often pull listener questions out of those comments and use them for topics on future shows. So uh, please, uh, please visit us there. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs>